Thank you so much, Dave. And good morning, everyone. Morning to you all. It is a real, real privilege to be here today and ministering out of God's Word. And actually, just um, I want to um, just honor the worship team, wherever they sit all around, um, for thank you for leading us this morning. And thank you, church, for worship. It felt like worship was plucked out of heaven this morning, and we could praise them. I think for song one, you know, we give you praise. I thought, oh, Lord, okay, it's going to be one of those days. All right, that's cool. That is wonderful. Um, it is so, so precious that we get to be in God's Word again. And if you are visiting us for the first time today or you um, haven't uh, been for a while and you're popping back in, a very, very warm welcome to every single one of you here. And we are in the middle, I guess we can say the middle, of a series through the book of 1 Peter, a letter written by a man, Peter, to a group of believers. And uh, in week one, we had Chris do chapter one, verses one and two. And uh, then last week, we had Francois speak uh, from chapter 1, verses 3 to uh, verse 12, I think it was. Hey, Francois? And this week, we're going to be doing chapter 1, verses 13 to chapter 2, verses 3. All right, so there's a, a little chunky portion that we are getting to do today. And just maybe before I jump in, I... Um, when it was my time to start prepping for this, uh, I took a piece of advice from my friend Chris that I'd love to share with you this morning. He, uh, when he was prepping for his preach, he, I saw him in the office and he just said, listen, I, I haven't actually started listening to any preachers around the text that I'm doing yet. So I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Or well, why? He says, well, I like to go and read the, the, the scriptures again and again and again and again, and then read different versions of that scripture again and again and again so that I get what the scripture is trying to say for itself before I hear what everyone else says that it says. And I actually thought, what an incredible exercise that is for you and I when we study the Scriptures. If we are serious about knowing God, if we're serious about truth, then maybe, just maybe, that's something that will help you as it's helped me. So what I did was I printed out my um, Scripture uh, that I was doing, my portion. I grabbed my pen. I started to highlight and underline and, and, and circle and, and ask questions and, and, and explore phrases. And I grabbed a bunch of different translations. Like never before we have access to the Word of God. We, um, we've never in, in human history had so much opportunity to learn and to glean. And uh, uh, so I grabbed the Amplified and the ESV, which is my Bible that I have, is the English Standard Version. I grabbed the NIV, I grabbed the message, I grabbed the NLT, the New Living Translation. I just read and read and read and read as I went along and looked at how these little changes in phrase made this incredibly rich and deep passage all the more exciting to read. And it's, I'll be honest, when I first read it in the ESV, I thought, shucks, I, I don't know what that actually means to be honest. <laughs> so it was so helpful for me to go and actually have a look at phrase after phrase put slightly differently in different places. And just I hope that helps you even as you study the Word. It is not hard to access commentaries, to access other versions of the Word so that you're able to understand more fully what God wants you to know. It's an incredible, incredible privilege that we have. And so that's what I did with this passage. And I hope that helps you to encourage you to do the same. So our passage starts off, as I said, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13. And it begins with this word, therefore. And so, Pan, you can pop that first verse up there. Therefore. And we know, as Bible scholars, every one of us, because God calls every believer to study the Bible, and we know that the word therefore means you must always look at what comes before. So what came before that we've looked at over the last two weeks? Well, in verse 1 and 2, we looked at how the whole Trinity is involved in the salvation of our souls. The whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved and invested in this incredible working out of redemption in creation. Then we heard uh, from Francois last week, even I love the way you described it, Francois, where you said, this is not the Peter of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels that we, it's not the same guy. It is, but it isn't. He's, he's older. There's an anointing. 
there's a wisdom, and, and every word, I think the way you said it was every word is measured. There's so much to every phrase and everything that he's saying. So even today, we're going to hop, skip, jump, and dance through this incredible portion of Scripture because we're not going to get everything from it. That's for you and I to do as we're at home and as we devote ourselves to the teachings, to the Scriptures that God gives us. And day after day, we get to glean and dig and mine for ourselves. Does that sound good? Okay, so what else did we get told yesterday, yesterday, last week? We got reminded that actually we are to have a doxology, a, a, a life of worship, a life of rejoicing that's built into us, actually. We, and why? Peter gives us the why of why we can worship every single day. He shows us that it is possible to have a song of praise to God in our lives because we can praise Him for His Son. We can praise Him for His great mercy. Praise Him for the resurrection of Jesus, the sureness that Jesus was raised from the dead. We can praise Him for the inheritance that God has for us. Actually, it's, the wording is so beautiful. I love words. I'm sure many of you do too. It calls that inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What an incredible thing. And it says that it is kept for us. That inheritance is kept for you, and it is kept for me. It's, it tells us, last week we were reminded that the prophets were, were, were seeing in part, looking in part, doing their bit and, and preparing and speaking and pointing towards, but actually, and even the angels, it says, long to look into this grace, this redemption, this salvation that God has made for us. And you would have probably remember from last week, Francois spoke about how salvation is like a, anybody? A Ferrari, like a Ferrari, which actually, this incredible, incredible thing that we get to experience and I, I suppose that this week's passages, we get to step in to that for ourselves. So, chapter uh, 1, verses 13. Therefore, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. Does it say that? Preparing your minds. As, yes, I'll keep with that one. Um, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Let your hope, sorry, set your hope. I can't even read this morning. This is going to go well. <laughs> set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And for the first time in this letter, we are presented with a command. We are told to do something. And that, that command is simple. It's place your hope fully in the grace of God. Place your hope fully there or fix your hope completely. If you have a look at the different translations, it says set your hope. I almost think of epoxy. You know, you set it and that thing's never moving. You fix it or even to rest, to put the full weight of your hope onto the grace of God. It's an incredible understanding of what we are called to do. There's an action that we are called to, but it's not just an action of doing. It's an action of our mind and it's an action of our heart that we are called to do. In fact, Peter is demanding of us that we experience hope. That's what he's saying. He's saying, actually, you are not, you've got to actually experience hope for yourself. And that's quite something. You've got to almost ask, well, what is hope then, Peter? If I'm called to experience it, what is it? And one commentator puts it like this. He says, hope is passion for the future with the confidence to back it up. I really love that statement. Hope is passion for the future and with confidence to back it up. And we're, the object of our hope, even this morning and at looking at this passage, is from, uh, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And just one of the things to help us with this, Psalm 147, verses 10 to 11, talks about God. It says, his, des his delight is not in the strength of the horse, or you horse lovers, I'm sorry, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. And I had a little smile. So I was like, nah, shame. <laughs> I love to have a good smile as I go through the scriptures. And it says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Wow. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope. In his steadfast love. The Lord's pleasure is on those who hope in his steadfast love and actually in his grace. 
There is a delight and there is a pleasure of God as we set our hope on His grace this morning. So, uh, I've been reading and listening to a whole bunch of different things. And one of the people that I will draw from a fair bit is a guy called John Piper. He does this incredible series called Look at the Book. And I encourage you to look at it if you'd like to study the scriptures deeper. But he does a, a walk through these passages and there's a phrase, a, a, a quote that I stole from him. And I think it's so beautiful. He says this, It is false to say that grace does not command, that it has no conditions. But what makes it grace is that its first command is to hope. Hope fully. Let your whole soul be engaged in hope. Don't be partially hoping and partially doubting. Hope fully. And so Peter calls us to set our hope on the grace of God. Now we should ask, well, how do we do this practically, Peter? It sounds really good, but how do we do this for ourselves? And he gives that to us too. One preacher commenting on this passage of Scripture says, this is Peter's instructions to us on how to walk in the dark. He says, actually, as Christians, you are walking in an unchristian world. So let's look at how we walk in the dark together. He starts off by saying, prepare your minds. In some other translations, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> and that can be a very weird phrase. <laughs> you might think, what loins are we talking about? And why? Well, that makes me a bit uncomfortable. But it, essentially, it means this, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready for action. Prepare to do work mentally. Think energetically. Be active in these things. You might say, well, my mind is running. My mind is busy. Peter is saying your mind should be running and busy with something that actually causes hope to grow inside of you. So what can we think about so actively that produces hope in us, friends? It's a really good question. The answer is truth. It's truth. If we fix our minds and get our minds actively thinking about truth, then what will happen is that actually um, hope begins to grow. And the next verse actually points to that a little bit, but we'll get to that more just now. In fact, Ephesians 6 verse 14, Paul writes, and he, and he says this, says, stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth. There's that loins word again. But gird yourself with truth. Gird your mind with truth. Prepare yourself with truth. And I think that is just so very important. So we are called to run with the truth of Scripture in our thinking. We're called to work with the truth of Scripture, meditate on the truth of Scripture, live the truth of Scripture. In fact, Romans 15, verses 4, beautiful passage, says, Whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction, that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. That's what it says, that we might have hope. So friends, I, I'm going to steal some thunder from myself later, but this is a non-negotiable for believers, for us, the scriptures, the truths are non-negotiable because they will fill us with hope as we get them into our minds and our very souls. One last picture I came across, which I found really, really helpful. One um, preacher, when they were talking, they, they, they shared this story. They said, you know what it's like? It's like you take your mind and you go out into scripture like you would go out into a forest and you collect the kindling of truth the dry sticks, the dry twigs, the dry pine cones, all of those things, and you collect the kindling of truth, and you come back, and you throw that kindling onto the flame of hope in your life. And what happens? The flame blazes all the more fully. And he's saying that's what it's like for us when we read the Scripture. He says, as you get your mind obsessed and active around truth, is that you start to gather kindling. The kindling is the truths of God, and you throw that kindling, you throw the truths onto your hope, and your hope burns bright. Does it make sense? How cool is that picture? It's really helpful for me as well. The second instruction that Peter gives us in that verse 13 is he says, be sober. Wow. And straight away we think, are we talking about drunkenness here? Yes, in a way we are. But some translations, if you have a look, 
It means to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled. In your spirit, you are steadfast. You are self-disciplined. You are spiritually and morally alert. You have clear thinking. Peter is pointing at something else here. Not only that we would go out and take truth and throw it onto the flame of hope in our life but, and get our minds active on that thing, but he says, actually, we are called to think clearly. Drunkenness is when you are dulled and desensitized to that which is real and true and valuable. When you try to reason with a drunk person, you can't. You can't point out what is good. You can't point out what would have been a more wise thing to do. And so Peter is saying, for us as believers, as those who have been touched by the grace of Jesus, we are called to be sober. We are called to be clear in our thinking. And we're going to talk more about that. Perceptions are warped when you're drunk, and the ability to make wise and weighed and good decisions is removed. So what is Peter referring to here for us? Perhaps he is saying that there are things in this world that can so intoxicate our mind as to dull our hope in Christ. Perhaps that's what Peter is pointing to. So a few questions for us. What is it that you and I can drink in through our eyes that dull our senses towards Jesus, that even for a moment distract us from the hope that we have in him, even for a moment distract us from the grace that God has shown us that we've heard about over the last two weeks? What are the activities or the thoughts that we can devote ourselves to that so intoxicate our soul, our mind, our being, that they can draw our clear attention away from the grace of God? And it's such a good question to ask ourselves even this morning. What are the things, Lord, that hinder me? What are the things that distract me from you? Because they're there. Believe me, they're there. But actually to ask God, God, what are they? Show them to me, please. There's an instruction from Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run. There's almost that thing of girding up your loins again. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. It's active, isn't it? Fixing our eyes. We heard it in 1 Peter about fixing our hope. And here in Hebrews, we're reminded to fix our eyes on who? On Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Friends, there are things that actually I believe this morning even God wants to point out to us and say, now it's time to throw it off. It's hindering you, throw it off. It's intoxicating, it's preventing you and I from being sober And when we think about the grace of God that's on our lives. One commentator puts it like this. They say, the great concern of God in this passage of his word is that we are not to be moderate hopers. We are not to be satisfied with half-hoping hearts, but what, that we engage our minds with hope-producing truth of scripture and that we guard our minds from the hope-diminishing causes in the world. Does it make sense? Okay. Then, so essentially Peter's asking us to set our hope on something. Set our hope on something. The grace of God. A student who's working so very hard academically sets their hope on the graduation day when it comes eventually. <laughs> Some of us who are third or fourth or fifth year, sixth year, like, yes, <laughs> very soon. A pregnant mother or a couple that is pregnant waits with eagerness for the day of the birth. A fiance, a guy and a fiance, they wait for the wedding day. The betrothed, they wait for the wedding day. They wait for the marriage that follows. A politician waits for voting day. But we as Christians, we set our hope on one thing. Our hope is set on the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says. He says that we set our hope on that. And that's where we commit fully. We commit fully to that thing. Let's go to verse 14. So that's verse 13. Verse 14 says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also 
be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And I just paused there for me when I was reading this passage, because the word that first jumped out was children. That's what we are. That's what we are. God calls us his children, friends. Let that sink deep into your soul with the sweetness greater than honey, that he calls us his children. In fact, Jesus, um, uh, in John 1, sorry, in John 1, it says, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. How beautiful. We are his children. And then Peter, again, gives an instruction to us. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And isn't it amazing how verse 14 and verse 13 play together because he uses the word ignorance there. In verse 13, we are encouraged to engage our minds with the truth of God. In verse 14, he says, because if you don't have the truths of God, you are ignorant. Actually, you lived in ignorance before. And uh, I think that's just an incredible thing, the way the word ties together. We, we're called to, to think soberly and clearly about truth. And if we don't know truth, we are ignorant. And again, uh, someone put it like this, and I, I just uh, want to acknowledge where I have taken an idea that's not mine, but I just love this. this. I can't even remember who it was, but they said this. And out of the ground of that ignorance, passion, some uh, translations say lusts grow. Out of the ground of ignorance, lusts grow that do not honor God. That actually out of the ground of not knowing the truth, out of the ground of not knowing who God is and what he has done, not knowing this grace that he has given us, lusts and desires that are not in conformity to who God is, they grow. And what happens? It says, and we conform to those, those patterns. And actually, I think of the word conform. What does conform mean to you? Almost like squished and squeezed into a particular mold or shape. And in so many ways, the scripture words it differently. It says, we become slaves to sin, slaves to unrighteousness, slaves to our crookedness, we're in our ignorance. We have passions that aren't from God, and we are slaves to them. We're conformed to them. We can't help ourselves. And I, I just I thought, wow, what an incredible way of wording it. So what do we do? We go out into the truth, the scriptures, friends, and we go out into them every day, and we gather the truths like kindling, and we bring them back, and we throw them onto the flames of the hope in our lives. And what happens? Our hope burns and blazes brightly. And what is that hope in? It's in the grace of God. That's, that's what we do. And so we are no longer ignorant. We're no longer ignorant. So it's a funny little thought that I had while I, I kind of got to this point. But as, as Christians, we, we never look back at our BC days, before Christ days, and we, and we say, wow, the good old days. We don't do that, do we? We don't. Uh, some, sometimes if you, if you don't have the, the grace of God in your full view all the time, sometimes you look back, you miss what you thought was freedom. And you miss something that you used to do, or whatever it may be. But, but, but actually, uh, Paul gives us a cold ice bucket of real, r reality, a reality check. He says, uh, actually, in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So, so Peter says, calls it your former ignorance. Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He says that you were um, slaves to disobedience. He says, you're sons to disobedience. You're slaves to it. You're conformed to it. You can't help yourself. And actually, he says, you're deserving of the wrath of God without Jesus. Isn't that wild? There's, there's a reality check for us. We never look back on the former days and say, oh, the good old days. And so Peter is referring to this former life. And I think what he's getting to here as he talks about holiness and this way of holiness is he says there's an old life that you and I need to learn to say no to every day. That there's a, an old way of doing things that actually we've got to say no to. So what do I mean by that? Well, friends, there are things that we did that we no longer do. There are things that we said that we no longer say. 
There are websites and movies and books that we looked at once that we have no business looking at now. Why? Because our hope is set on the grace of God that has visited us, that has touched us, that has changed us forever. We are encouraged by Peter to say no to that former life and no to those things. But it's sometimes not enough just to say no, is it? You've got to replace the no with a yes. What are we saying yes to? We say yes to God, yes to his ways, yes to his holy standards. And that's why Peter comes to this point where he says, he quotes and, and he says, the, quotes the Old Testament and says, be holy as I am holy, which God gives as an instruction to his people. Now holiness is quite a churchy word, isn't it? You don't really find it spoken about in the coffee shops or in the park run or something like that. Hey, man, let's, let's talk about holiness. How's your holiness today? We don't really say that, it's, but we find it in church circles and religious circles quite a bit. So what does holiness mean? It means other than. It means set apart. It means utterly unique, transcendent, one of a kind, immeasurably precious. It's very hard to pin down exactly what it is. But when God speaks of himself, the primary characteristic that he gives us, is he says, I am holy. I am set apart, utterly precious, utterly unique. No other like me. It's an incredible thing. So the message puts this passage that we've just looked at a little differently. It says, as obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. And I think that's where Peter's now gunning for here, is he's saying, actually, your life starts to get drawn into the life of God. And the life of God is a holy life. And what happens as that begins is that your conduct begins to be affected. The way that you and I are begins to be affected day after day after day after day. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means, I think this is what Peter's saying to us, that we should be holy in the way that we conduct ourselves in such a way that it points to the value and the preciousness and the holiness of God. The way that you and I live should point to the fact that he is valuable and he is one of a kind and he is utterly precious and that he is holy. That the way of our life should, should point to that. Every decision that you and I make, friends, should be with his reputation in mind. Can I say that again? Every decision that you and I make should be with his reputation in mind, with his glory in view, with him in view. The New Testament reminds us that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to him who ransomed us and bought us for himself, and we are called to bear the family resemblance. I was uh, cleaning up on my driveway the other day, and a lady stopped in her car, and, and so she hung out her window, and she said, hey, you're Greg's boy. That's all. And then she drove off. <laughs> it was very bizarre. I was like, yes, I am. Strange woman in the car. That's, that's me. But for whatever reason, she knew that I bore the, the family resemblance of my father. And, uh, and I think you and I are called to bear the family resemblance of holiness because our God is holy. Our Father is holy. And, and it's so amazing. Peter, when he says, he doesn't say, uh, be holy in some of your conduct. <laughs> Or be holy in most of your conduct. He says, be holy in all of your conduct. One of the translations puts it like this. It says, in every department of your life. In every department from your thinking to your feeling to your being to your saying to your sexuality to everything about you. Everything. Your work. Your family. Everything. Every department of your life. 
be holy in all of your conduct. What does that mean? Be set apart. Be different. Be other than. So that it points to him. So instead of being ignorant friends, we fully hope in the grace of God. And out of that hope, uh, new passions and new desires grow. Out of the grounds of the hope that we have in Jesus and in his grace, the new desires begin to grow. New passions begin to grow. And what happens? We conform ourselves to that. The Bible talks in the New Testament about how we become slaves to righteousness. We become slaves to righteousness and we conform to the new passions and the new desires that grow out of this hope that we have, the steadfast hope that we have in Jesus. Let's go to verse 17. Verse 17 says, and if, I, hello. <laughs> and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And a few things from that. That word ransomed can also mean the word redeemed. Redeemed, bought back. And when it says futile ways, if you jump through the translations, it's so fun. It actually talks about aimless life. You were, ra- you were ransomed and bought back from an aimless life. Another translation, I think the Amplified says, a life aimed in the wrong direction. That's what we are bought from. And it says that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things. And the Amplified version says that will run out, that will fade, that will change in value, actually. You're not bought with those things. You're bought with what? With the precious blood of Christ. I remember my friend Peter uh, preaching many years ago and talking about, he said, actually, friend, you and I have a price tag on our lives. And that price tag is the precious blood of Christ. It's the precious blood of Christ. That's the price tag that you and I carry that God paid for us. And actually, if Jesus were not the lamb without blemish and without spot, then he would not be qualified to be our redeemer. But he is. But he is. So he is. It's the most incredible thing. So one thing about this passage that I found quite interesting, and it's also pointed out by a couple of other people too, is it starts off with Father. And your heart should probably swell inside of your chest a little bit thinking about that. Your father. But then it talks a little bit later and brings out the word fear. Did you notice that? You notice the word fear? And then it follows fear with saying, knowing that you are ransomed, knowing that you are bought, knowing that you are redeemed. And you almost got to ask the question, well, what's fear doing there? What's fear doing there? And I know that perhaps in other scriptures as well, we might ask, well, what's fear doing there, Lord? Why are you saying that? Well, we read it earlier that God delights in those who fear him. Do you remember that? Okay, so what do we do with fear? Well, again, I don't want to take credit where it's not mine. John Piper, in his um, looking through the book, he, he tackles this, and he does it brilliantly. So I'm so grateful for him because it helped me, and I, I hope it helps you too. He says essentially this. The first fear, he uses a scripture to explain it, and it's in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. And in Philippians, 12 verses, ah, Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, it says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And John Piper uses that scripture and he says, if you, if you think about it, if you really start to apply your mind as we should want to do, it says, therefore it is God. And then he adds there, God almighty. It is God almighty who is working in you and me. And that should cause our hearts to look with some sort of reverential fear, 
to say, it is God Almighty, the creator of all things, the one who looks at supernovas and they are nothing to him, the one who can rewrite anything, bring it to existence and bring it out of existence. It is God Almighty who works in you and in me. (laughs) And it should produce a reverence and a fear in our souls saying, wow, wow. And that's an exciting and scary thing all at the same time. He asked the question, are you aware of his majesty and his power? Are you aware? It is God himself who works in you. What does it say? To will, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amazing. He says that's the first way that we can use fear actually to help us. The second one is this, and he, 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 he quotes, I'm going to quote him, sorry. He says, there's a second kind of fear that believers should feel. A fear of ever cozying up to the sins that make your heavenly father send his son to die and shed his precious blood. A fear that living in such a way will disregard the father and the precious blood of the son that he shed for us. That fear should drive us to faith and to holy living. He says this essentially, we should be afraid to live a life that makes God's redemptive work look like trash. That's, that's essentially what he says. And I, I think that was so helpful for me. There's a fear because God himself is at work. God Almighty is at work in us. And secondly, there's a fear that we should feel saying, Lord, may we never live a life that makes people look at us and say, actually, what God did is trash. Makes sense. I I thought that was incredibly helpful for me. I hope it helps you too. There's a hymn written by a man called Robert Lowry. uh, It's called Nothing But the Blood. Have you heard it? You probably, many of you know it. And um, he asks this question. He says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Does the way that we live point to the preciousness of the blood shed for you and me? That's, I think, what Peter's asking us. And he's encouraging you and me to live a life that points and saying, our God is holy and we bear the family resemblance because, oh, precious was the flow and made us white as snow. Is that good? Okay, let's go to verse 20. It says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And the message puts it in a cool way, which I'd love to share with you. It says this, even though it has only lately, at the end of the ages, become public knowledge, God always knew that he was going to do this for you. It's because of the sacrificed Messiah whom God then raised from the dead and glorified that you trust God and that you know you have a future in God. It's an incredible thing that the redemption plan of God was not a, it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't made up on the fly. It was known by the council of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, decided on at the beginning, at the foundations of the world, that God would work out this great and beautiful salvation plan with you and with me. It's an incredible reminder, an incredible truth. And uh, Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 2 kind of takes a little bit further. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, I underlined that in my Bible, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And there's this I think reminder that Peter's even giving us in this passage of 1 Peter where he's saying Jesus is not inconsequential. Jesus is not small. The arrival of Jesus inaugurated this period of human history called the last days. And we are in them. We are in the middle of it. And you might say, well, it's been the last 2,000 plus years. doesn't matter. I remember Francois speaking about eternity. And so actually 2,000 years is a blink of an eye in eternity in these last days that we are in. It's been brought to us by the appearance of Jesus. And so you've got to almost like take note of, there's a phrase in there that just made my own heart just leap. It says there, for the sake of you. For the sake of you, friends. This massive redemption story that God is doing, this grace that we heard about last week that should move you. It should move you, as it says, God Almighty, who is at work within you, it should move you. And actually in that moment, you're thinking, well, who's this for? You know, and it says, for the sake of you. For the sake of you, friends. He shed his precious, his immeasurably precious blood for you and for me. And, and then it's all of this that's happening for the sake of you. And I, I must be honest, I, I looked at the, just thought, Lord, I don't feel worthy. I read that and I, I don't feel worthy. And maybe you resonate with that a little bit too. But you know what we do with that? We go out into Scripture and we gather the kindling of truth. And we gather it day after day and we bring it back and we throw it heaped onto the fire of our hope. And we allow that hope to blaze. And, and when it does, we remind ourselves actually, this is the truth of God. This is why we have hope because it is for us. His precious blood was shed for us. We are ransomed. We are his children. He has done it. The resurrection is sure. Are you, are you, getting, are you getting that beautiful connection between how important truth is? For each and every single one of us. And then we almost got to ask the question, well, for what, God? Why would you do all of this amazing, this incredible story? Why would you do it? And it carries on there. It says, who through him are believers in God. Who through Jesus, through Jesus, friends, we believe, we set our hope on him. Through Jesus, we are able to do that. There's this momentum that's being built in this passage. I have no doubt it's going to continue into next week and the week after and the week after as we go through 1 Peter. But there's this building of momentum towards who it is that we have hope in. It should excite us because our hope is not misplaced. Our hope comes from a known future in which we can have confidence. It's, and from that place, verse 22 comes. It says, having purified your souls having purified your souls. And commentators, when they look at this, they say, hey, this is, this is something that happened as you're saved, and it is something that is happening day after day after day. The sanctification of the Spirit, as we heard in verse 1. The sanctification of the Spirit is at work in you. God himself is at work in you. And he is changing you to look like who? Oh, you can say it with a little bit more excitement. To look like Jesus. I was, I was sharing with the youth a few weeks ago that do you ever read the scriptures and you see this incredible person, Jesus, and your heart just gets excited inside of you because you think, God, this is who you're turning me into. This is who I'm going to look like. The, the fruits of the Spirit, your Spirit in my life, your work within my heart is changing me more and more to look like this person. And thank you, Lord, for that, <laughs> that I'm not going to look more and more like my truest self, Michael. No, I'm going to look like Jesus day after day after day after day. And that's God's hope. That's God's purpose with you is that more and more and more you are going to look more and more and more like his precious 
son. That is an exciting thing. Certainly for me, I hope it is for you too. So next time you're reading through the scriptures and saying, wow, Jesus, you're so compassionate there. Hey, God is wanting to cause the same fruit of compassion to grow in you and me. So that more and more every day, we look more and more like Jesus, which is so exciting. And let's keep reading. <laughs> it says, uh, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. There's some translations say the brethren or love for the family of God. It says, love one another earnestly. Ooh. When was the last time you looked at someone and said, hey, I earnestly love you. <laughs> I think that's not something usually in our language, but what does it mean? I loved what I found here. It means to love fervently. And actually it means, it's almost like a picture of your muscle. It means to love to its greatest extent. It almost means to push the love further than what it's gone before. It's almost like you're supposed to feel the strain of loving and stretching out. Does that make sense? It's like go beyond what is comfortable when you love one another. Jesus points to this when he says, by this, all people are going to know. By this, this fact that you love one another. People will know that you belong to me by the way you love each other. How are we loving each other? It's a good question to ask. Is there evidence of a stretching and a straining to love each other more and love each other better than we did before? I am um, one preacher who I was listening to said this thing that actually really, really impacted me personally and where I'm at. And I think that's good because I shouldn't just come be like, this is what the word is saying to you, but I, the word should be impacting me first as I get to go through it. And um, basically they, he said this, he said, the fact, wait, I've lost my place completely. It's so cool. There we go. <laughs> Salvation should affect every other relationship in your life. He said the <laughs> your wife and your husband should rejoice by the fact that you are saved because you love them better better every day. Uh, the cat should rejoice that you are saved because you love it better and better every day. He said, your mother-in-law and your father-in-law, your enemy, your co-worker, you get the picture? Should rejoice because you are loving them more and more and more every day. Why? Because we seek to love each other fervently, to stretch out. I think it's an incredible act. And by that act, I think it's all tied into what Peter's saying about holy conduct. He's saying, if you want to look holy, that's what it looks like, to love each other fervently. The message puts it like this. It says, now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth. <laughs> I love that. You want to live a clean life that's uncomplicated? Well, sometimes it just looks like following the truth. <laughs> Quite simple. Love one another as if your lives depended on it. Your new life is not your old life. There's a seems to be a special place in God's people to love one another. It's a special calling that's on us. In 1 Timothy 1 verses 5, Paul is writing to this young man, Timothy, and says, the aim of our charge is love that issues, almost like pours out from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's a love that comes from a life that's touched by the grace of Jesus. That's the love that pours out to one another and to others. Let's go to verse 23. You guys still okay? Bring this into a close. Let's go. Verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then it quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, and says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he gives the word of the Lord there. He, he makes it clear for us. He says, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. It was the gospel. 
It was the good news of Jesus that you heard. That's the unfailing word. That's the one that stands forever. That's the one that's not going to change. And we're introduced to this picture in this passage of almost like a, a field of flowers. Think of the Namaquiland flowers, which just blooms all over the place. It's colorful and it's vibrant. And then you fast forward a few weeks and every flower is gone. And every bit of vegetation has dried up. And it's dry desert ground again. And he's saying, that is what the things of this world are like. Money, sex, and power. The things that people chase after in this world. A bigger house, a more sure job, the comforts of a life where you know exactly what's in your bank account and exactly what's coming. Um, they, maybe it's your, your kids. Everything's about your kids, whatever it is. He, he, he says, those things will fade. The only thing that will go forever is the word of God, it says, which remains forever. It's the gospel. It will stand forever. It is steadfast. It is unchanging. And I almost, I love asking this question. If the nearest people in your life, your, your husband, your wife, your best friends, your children, if they were to look at your life right now and describe to someone else what that life is, would they say, wow, this person is living with eternity in mind? Would they say, wow, this person is living not for the stuff here on this world. Mom and dad are, are not living for the stuff on this world. No, no, they're living for a life that's coming. They're living for an eternity that's on its way. And it is sure the arrival of Jesus Christ is coming because we are in the last days. Would they say that of us? Or would they say, hey, mom and dad seem awfully concerned with comfort. Would your spouse say, wow, you seem awfully concerned with what money is in our bank accounts. You know what I'm saying? That's the stuff that I, I feel even for me. That um, I feel like God is pointing us and saying, actually, there is, Jesus said, he said, actually, where moth, don't store your treasure where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't do that. Don't do that. I think that's something of what Pete's, Pete, <laughs> Peter's pointing us to there a little bit. So what is our part to play in this grand scheme of God? This grand uh, working out of his story that he is writing with creation, this redemption plan. I believe our part is to believe. I think he's calling us to believe and to trust. It says, for you who through him will believe. It's our, we, our call is to believe and to trust him and to say yes, to say no to a former life and yes to the life of God. Day after day after day, moment after moment. This, what we've talked about this morning talks about our holy conduct. It talks about loving each other earnestly. talks about being alert in our mind and sober and actively going out and finding truth. All of this flows out of a hope that comes from a life that's touched by Jesus. All of that flows out from there. So let's finish off with our chapter two, verses one to three. It says, so. Every time it says so, it's almost like saying, because of all these things, so. What are we gonna do, friends? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. That word so should draw us just above to the verses that we've just gone through. So, so what? Well, because you've been born again. That's what it said previously. You've been born again. Because you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God that remains forever. That's what it says in the words, in, in the verses before. Because of that, you are new. You are new. I am new. We are new in Jesus we are new in him. We are not our old ways. And so what do we do? We put away everything that is not in conformity to the new that God has made us. We are not those things any longer. I wish we had time to go through malice and slander and envy because I think there's such good things to study from that and say, God, search me, know me. Just like David did, search my heart, Lord. What, what are these things that still exist there? 
But what is it all? He says, actually, long for, long for the spiritual milk. My guinea pig, I wanted to put a picture up, but it would be too cute. It would, it would be too much for you. Uh, my guinea pig just had three babies. Their names are Gherkin, Gus Gus, and Monty. And they are fantastic. But they are hungry for the, well, for the milk that their mom, Drew, has. You literally see them like running around the bath where they're living at the moment. And they are always trying to get underneath to her teats because they long for the milk. They know that without it, they will die exactly and there's a picture that peter is giving us he's saying christians born again ones ones belonging to him who has ransomed you and bought you receivers of this incredible salvation redemption plan long for the milk what's the milk the milk is the word the living word of god that abides forever it's the gospel long for it and and go out and seek truth and find it and apply your minds to it be sober and clear about it that's what he's saying long for the milk what is your desire Friends, what do you long for? I'll be honest. Sometimes for me, I haven't longed for God well. I've longed for comfort more. I've longed for life to be easy more, for difficulty to go away. But Peter's not giving us that room here, friends. He's saying there's a longing that should reside in your soul, a soul touched by Jesus, and that longing is for the milk. It's for the truth of God. It's the gospel of Jesus that should always be a longing for us. And what does it do? What's its product? It causes us to grow up. We start to grow. Those babies are two weeks old. They started off this small. They're now that big. They have grown rapidly. And it's because they are eating what they should be eating. What are you feeding your soul with? Are you growing up into this salvation? You were saved, but our sanctification is happening. And you are growing into this beautiful salvation. So, as I said earlier on, eating and drinking the word of God is a non-negotiable. It is not optional for us. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Act on that incredible hunger and thirst. And so last scripture for us comes, actually Peter quotes it. It's from Psalm 34, verses eight and nine. And it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then it says this, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's that word fear again. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. That's one Peter 1 verses 13 through to chapter 2 verses 3. Thank you so, so much for listening. Can I hand over to you, Francois? Bless you all, Red Point Church. Yeah.